What's up and welcome to Wait Hold Up Podcast with Jessica Molina and Yarel Ramos. Each week, tune in as we have unfiltered conversations about careers, relationships, wellness, feminism, and of course, we'll often be joined by guests you either know or should know who will share their humor, knowledge, and their very own Wait Hold Up moments with us. Here at Wait Hold Up, we want you to feel like you found your crew, your girls who you can do life with. Listen, it's a crazy world out there and we can all use some help in our efforts to live our best lives. We don't have all the answers, but we're down to figure it out together. Thanks for listening. Here's our latest episode of Wait, Hold Up. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Welcome, Welcome back. to the podcast. Dun, 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 we need dun, to have like whenever those things that it's like, a la una, los dos, los tres. Welcome to the podcast. Like everyone has it. You know, everybody has one. We don't have one. And I think we need, no. No. I'd, no. I'd, I feel like our voices are both so intense, though. And people will be like, all right. You're like, I know exactly. We're vibing in a crazy high frequency right, right now. Right. Um. So listen, let's be honest. Right now. What are we all obsessed with? Or what Elections. should we? Thank you. Thank you. Elections. Clearly, we have someone who's very excited. In <laughs> November 6th. <laughs> November 6th in California. Is it like but in most states? Yeah, most in most states. states. Most, most states. states. Okay. And so considering that, we wanted to make sure that we brought someone to the show who is not just knowledgeable about elections, but really is knowledgeable about policy, politics, um, about the way that policy directly impacts our lives, and she knows. So today we're excited to bring you uh, a special guest. Yes. We have Lucy Flores. Lucy is a former Nevada State Assemblywoman and candidate for Congress. Lucy's story is truly remarkable. Early in her life, she experienced many hardships and at a young age found herself in the school-to-prison pipeline. But even with all the odds stacked against her, Lucy's story is a remarkable reminder that with the right people and a ton of perseverance, it is possible to change the course of your life. So, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. It's my pleasure. So, obviously, in the introduction, we're talking about... um, your your story and I think that while I can only give a tease to it I want you to just give us a little bit of background about your story about a little bit of your struggle mm-hmm. and how you kind of rose up from that yeah absolutely well it's something I talk about a lot um and I didn't intend it to be that way I didn't <laughs> intend a lot of things to be in any way um but yeah it started my story started here in LA and I was born in East LA um and uh right around up two years old or so both of my older brothers, one of my dad's firstborn sons, they were both murdered around the same time because of drugs and gangs and um, violence that they had gotten involved in. And so, you know, that was really traumatic for my family, obviously very traumatic for my dad losing one of his, literally his firstborn child and then his other, his other son, my brother. Um, So he literally just picked us all up and took us to Vegas and tried to start over. And, you know, we were 
I say typical because, you know, my background is in politics. And so I say typical in terms of public policy and what immigrant families are still experiencing today in this country, um, which is not that much different. In fact, sometimes it's worse than what we experienced 20 years ago growing up in Las Vegas as an immigrant family. But we were very low income. We didn't have, you know, really much of anything. Um, but also very typically, you just make do, right? You figure it out. I mean, that's that's what we do. Um, despite not having a whole lot. And so we did that and everything actually was kind of okay. Um, but then my mom decided that she didn't want to be a part of our family anymore. So she left and I was nine years old when that happened. So that was like the first time that, um, you know, that even though things were difficult, that I didn't understand what was happening at that point. I didn't know why my mom would just leave us, why she didn't think that we were important you know, all these things. My little brother was my had two little brothers and they were three and four years old. Wow. And so, yeah, so you can imagine, you know, I have all these really traumatic memories of, you know, my little brothers being in diapers. And even now, sometimes I say, I think, I think back on that and I'm like, wait, they were three and four years old. Why were they still in diapers? Bad parenting. Bad parenting. And, and yeah, and I just remember them standing, you know, naked besides diapers, you know, clinging on to this um, chain link fence and just crying their little souls out, you know, and watching my mom drive away. And, you know, for a long time, I couldn't even talk about that. I couldn't say that without like completely breaking down. Um, and it's still really hard, but, you know, I found that the more I started to talk about my experience growing up, that obviously the more meaningful it was in terms of the work that I was doing. So after my mom left, it was just a bad situation. You know, I was in a low income area. We had underfunded schools. There was gangs and drugs. I mean, a lot of the same stuff that my dad tried to leave in LA, we ended up finding again in Vegas. So we ended up, um, I was in gifted and talented education, but that didn't really make a difference for me because once my mom left and I started acting out and, you know, like Mm. I I didn't have anywhere to turn to in terms of support or help. Right. My dad was literally trying to keep us just clothed and fed. So he was never around. He was a landscaper by day and he would go out and be a musician at night. Um, And so I remember, you know, he would literally work all day long we would, I was like 10 or 11 or 12 years old. And, you know, I'd be taking care of my little brothers and Lord knows how that house did not light itself on fire or some really (laughs) terrible things happened, you know? Um, but yeah, I remember my dad just saying, you know, don't open the door, you know, don't answer the phone. Um, you know, don't do all of these things. Um, I'll be back, you know, at two or three in the morning or whatever. And then literally, you know, three and four hours later, he would be back again, working his landscaping job. And, and so, you know, for me, the oldest, sorry. No, I, so there was my, my two older sisters were still with us as well because there was 11 of us left even after my two brothers were murdered. Yeah, it was. um, So my dad was a musician, like I said, but so he had three different baby mamas because, you know, also not trying to stereotype, but you know how it goes. So (laughs) he ended up having, um, three sets of kids. Um, and so, but we were all, we all knew each other. We were, you know, basically a family. And, um, and so my two older sisters were still in the house, but then they also left a little after my mom left. And so that also made it really difficult for me because I was, you know, when my sister was 15, I was 12 and then I had no female figure at all, you know, and it was literally me just trying to be the mom to 
my little brothers. Um, so I started getting in trouble and I started acting out and I started running away from home and hanging out with, you know, the bad crowd and, and just doing things, you know, because I didn't, I didn't know what else to do. And instead of actually getting any kind of intervention, instead of people looking at my test scores and literally looking at my educational performance and saying like, how did this, how did this young girl go from gifted and talented to literally failing every last thing that she's doing essentially overnight, right? Wow. Nobody looked at that and said, maybe we should figure out what's going on at home. Yeah. Um, so instead of doing that, I was arrested. Um, I was booked. I remember the very, one of the very first times that I was booked into juvie. Um, I don't, I think I shoplifted or maybe I, maybe I ran away because back in, in those days, and this is something that we've worked on to change a lot as well is, um, there's things called status offenses and status offenses aren't something that would normally be considered a crime if an adult did it, but because a juvenile did it, it's considered a crime, even though it's really not like mm -hmm. running away, for example, or ditching school or, you know, a yeah. lot of these things that, that young people are not supposed to be doing are actually considered crimes under various laws that still exist in a lot of states. Wow. And so I was arrested and I remember being booked into juvie and I was strip searched. Mm. I was 12 years old and, you know, I remember standing there and just kind of like, I don't know, at that point you just kind of like, this is, this is what, this is what we have to go through. Um, and so you're stripped down, you're mug shotted, you're um, basically booked like a regular criminal, like, you know, like you just killed somebody and um, you're put into an orange jumpsuit and you're thrown into a cinder block room that's Ooh. freezing um, with metal benches and you just sit there. And, and with people of all ages who have people also... People of all ages. Oh, my oh goodness. My God. So you could be booked. You legit, legitimately could be booked with, you know, like a 17-year-old. I mean, it's female and male, but you could legitimately be booked with a 17-year-old who actually did kill somebody, you yeah. know? And so you're, you're essentially treated all the same way. Um, and frankly, that's when the process of institutionalization begins, right? That's yeah. where the school to prison pipeline begins. Um, because then it doesn't get any better from there. You're right. literally treated worse. You're not treated yeah. the same. You're actually treated progressively worse. And so the more I got into trouble, the more, the more, badly I was treated and frankly the more that I was treated like I was just some common criminal and like I was just another statistics like I was just another number um and frankly just an expectation of what the Latino community is right, right? like mm -hmm. criminals bad people worthless not contributing anything to society right and so as I I things got progressively worse and more serious. I started gangbanging and um, getting arrested for more serious crimes. I ended up on juvenile parole by the time I was 15 um, and ended up dropping out of high school at 17. And, and you know, a miraculous thing happened during that time because even though um, I was on parole, I was released from this juvenile, from this long-term institution, a, a prison. Um, I was there for almost a year. And when I was released, it was the same situation, right? They're releasing you back into an environment, but they're not giving you any resources. They're not giving you any help. You're not, you're not going back into a support system that can actually try to help you do better. You're literally just released in the same everything yet expected to be different. Mm. And so what is the reality of a young person being put into the situation and the likelihood of that young person being able to turn their lives around magically overnight right i mean it's very very low so when we talk about um and, and you know this is when i start to 
really get upset about this whole policy conversation about personal responsibility and that, you know, this, frankly, this extremist right that has developed this policy narrative that essentially if you're poor or if you're in jail or if you are in all of these bad situations, it's because you decided it so right right like right. you because that was a, the choice that you, you made, made right. but there was absolutely no there's no further conversation about the nuances of that about growing up in a culture of poverty of a culture of violence of mm. being put into a system that just chews you up and spits, spits you out um and that's really what began to happen to me and so when i got out i really did i i did try like i i really focused and said to myself, I don't want to be these things. I don't want to, I don't want to die. I don't want to be in prison. Like I, I knew people who had been killed, you know, gang banging. Um, I, I know what it's like to be shot at. I know what it's like to have a gun in your face. Like I've experienced all these terrible things. I saw my best friend when I was 12 years old, get stabbed right in front of me. You know, like I've experienced all these things that frankly, no young person like anywhere but much less in the united states of america with the kind of wealth that we have here should be experiencing these things and and so i i said to myself i don't want to do this anymore but again i was kind of released into the same environment and yeah i messed up and so i was arrested again several times actually and um the last time when i thought for sure that my parole was going to be revoked I just said to myself, I was sitting in the back of the police car again and I was being taken to juvie and I was around 15 or so at the time, 15 or 16. And I, I I had really resigned myself to what I believed my destiny was going to be. And I said to myself, okay, well, at least I tried because I really had, you know, like I knew deep down inside, no matter what anybody thought or what anybody, how anybody treated me that I knew that I had tried, but I just wasn't able to make it yeah. because of my circumstances. And, and so when I was sitting there waiting to be sentenced, knowing for sure that my parole was going to be revoked and that my parole officer was going to recommend to the judge that my parole be revoked and that I'd be sent away because that's literally what happened to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually told the judge when he asked what her recommendation was, um, she said, your honor, I recommend that Lucy Flores be released to the custody of her father. Wow. And, and it really was that moment that, that sticks with me, you know, and that has been that moment that for me, everybody always asks like, what's your, was that light bulb moment or what was that aha moment? And that Mm. was it for me, right? Because I had already accepted my fate and all of a sudden this woman was saying, no, you can do something else. You have the opportunity for something different. And I believe in you. You know, and at that point, nobody had ever done that for me, right? Nobody had ever said, you know, you can be different. I mean, one or on one or two occasions, right? But no one had actually demonstrated right, to me meaningful, action, right, right mm-hmm. of saying, I I know that you can be better. And so, and she used to say that to me all the time, you know, that she understood that I wasn't a bad kid. She just knew that I was in a really bad situation with a really dysfunctional family, and you know, obviously the circumstances that I was living in. So it really was that moment that didn't change my life overnight, but put me on a different path in a completely different direction. And so at that point, I did everything I possibly could to um, 
to not get in trouble. I put myself basically on house arrest. (laughs) Um, I had always been in alternative education, which basically means that they segregate all of the, Mm -hmm. all of the bad kids, quote unquote, bad kids, um, into, you know, their own schools because that's going to help, right? Just putting a bunch of poorly poorly behaving young people into the same place and like you know yeah wow yeah uh so that's where I was and so I transferred over to a regular high school um near my dad's house I you know like even though I dropped out which again was something that was very normal in my community um especially my family only one of my brothers had actually graduated from high school and everybody else had dropped out Mm. So my sisters also, you know, one of my uh, youngest, well, one of my older sisters was pregnant with tw- with twins when she was 14 years old. And every last one of my sisters were young teenage moms or young moms. And, uh, and so, you know, these were the kinds of expectations for not only myself, but the role models that I had available to me. Um, and so when I dropped out of high school, it was really more of just a a normal occurrence than anything else. I mean, really the extraordinary thing would have been to actually graduate, right? you right. know? Um, and so I, so I started going to this high school and I started ditching class and hanging out in like the pottery class and the photography class because like, I figured, look good. Right? Yeah. I, was like, I figured that was like the, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the safe place to yeah. be, you know, and I could find what, better, what could pottery better, do, right. to be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, there's probably really nice kids in there. They're not gangbanging for sure. <laughs> That's right. Unless they're like, you know, making some sort of I don't know throwing signs and (laughs) making a pottery out of it I don't know but um which I'm sure that there was some of that going on but but yeah you know I that in my mind at at that time was it made a lot of sense you know like I didn't know any other way um except to try to figure out how do I just stay away from bad influences? How do I not get caught up? Because it's so easy to get caught up in the streets. Like, you know, you could literally just be walking down the street and shit happens, you know? I'm, can you cuss on here? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You know, fine. it just, it does. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, people, a gang fight will will break out or someone will hit you up about something or, you know, someone will say, oh, come with me here and you go and then it ends up being a robbery. I mean, there's just so many right. things, you know, yeah. that could just happen that. And so you try to avoid that as much as possible, which is what I did. And yeah. And after a couple of years, you know, I was pretty successful at frankly, kind of, um, removing myself from all of these bad friends, these bad influences that I used to have. And it was really, really, really hard. Um, so fast forward a couple of years, I, ended up, um, just getting regular jobs. Uh, I ended up at a women's prison of all places, working there, there, uh, which was, which was, I know, right. (laughs) Which was another like super weird occurrence in my life because I, someone told me that there was a receptionist job available and I hadn't graduated from high school, but you needed a diploma. So I was like, well, it's fine. I'll just, I'll just apply because even if they asked me for one, like I could just forge one. I'll figure it out. You're like, how how hard is it to just like make up a diploma? You know, I mean, that was where my mindset was. Right. And, but at least I was using it for good. Right. Right, right. (laughs) It's like, this is, I'm trying to get a job. Okay. (laughs) But that's another thing, right? Like how difficult it is once you haven't gone the traditional route or once you have a record or you've dropped out of high school to then actually reestablish your life and get on track and do what is right. Exactly. Society isn't set up for people to have second, 
third, fourth chances. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And and you're and we're not, you know, like there's always a stigma associated with any mistake that you've done in the past, no matter how responsible or not you were for that mistake, right? And or those choices that you made. And frankly, you know, people make difficult choices that are legal and illegal all the time in this country, right? And oftentimes, um, and I'm certainly not, um, I'm not certainly not making excuses for anyone, but sometimes people are breaking laws out of survival as opposed to, you know, these white collar criminals who were breaking the laws because they're just trying to put away more money in their tax havens, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or like rooting people's, looting people's retirement, et cetera. Like all of those Wall Street criminals should be in prison and they're there because of greed. And yet you have all of these people who are creating, who are committing crimes out of sheer survival, like survival every single day. And so many of those people, of course, end up in prison and then it's just a cycle. cycle. What happens after you get out? Because, because you're not allowed to move on and you're not allowed to pay your debt to society, which you already did by serving that amount of time that you were incarcerated. So I ended up applying at this women's prison and they did not thankfully ask for proof that I had graduated. Um, I was always, I've always been a lifelong learner since I was a kid. I've loved reading. We couldn't afford things, but like, I remember having an encyclopedia set that had like five letters, you know, because oh, yeah. <laughs> we couldn't afford the whole set. That was me. My dad couldn't buy us the fancy ones, so he would get us the older ones at pick and save. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you had like X and you had like, you know, the letters <laughs> like that nobody wanted, wanted, right? Cute. So it's like, I know all about the yeah. xylophone, the yeah. xylophone and like everything, an x-ray, you know, like everything that starts with X. Amazing. I think I have so, like five of those because of the Y. The right. Y was always it's, one that nobody wanted. And exactly. I'm like, oh, it's my name. It's my name. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that was me. And so, you know, and, and this is one of the things that that we, we all know about that we're, that when they say this to us, it's very insulting now, but people always said that I was well-spoken. Mm. Um, again, I guess because, you know, they expected us to have an accent or speak with improper grammar or whatever right. the hell it was, right? Mm-hmm. And so people would say that. And so finally they said, you know, apply for this job. I got in. And it was a really interesting thing that occurred there, too, because, of course, like of all places, I end up at a women's prison um, working there, not living there. Um, but there was this moment where uh, it was normal to have lunch behind we call it behind the wall, like actually with the inmates in the cafeteria. Um, so we'd go back there and have lunch and it was no big deal. And then one day I was going back up to the front office and I hear somebody call my name and I think it's a coworker. So I turn around like expecting to see one of the CEOs or the correctional officers um, or, you know, somebody else. And I turn around and it's this girl that I used to gangbang with. Mm. And I was just like so shocked to see her there, you know, and I, she walked up to me and, you know, when you haven't seen a friend, you know, in a really long time, you're like all excited and you're like, oh, hey, how are you? You know, and you're just like, how are you? What have you been up to? You know, you're like catching up. And I literally kind of had that same reaction, but then I was like, how are you? You know, you're like, oh, you're clearly you're in prison. You're not doing well, you know? And I, so it was like kind of a weird reaction because I didn't, I would, I was, I was happy, but then I was like, oh, I can't be happy because she's in prison. And like, what was yeah. her response to seeing and her, you? She was like, what are you doing here? Yeah. And I'm like, I Why work here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, what are you doing here wearing right. that? Did they release you today? What yeah. happened? Yeah. You know? And so I was like, she, uh, you know, she's like, you work here? And I'm like, yeah, you, you live here? You yeah. know? Oh my gosh. She's like, yeah. And, you wow. know, it was one of those kind of ghosts of Christmas future mm. moments 
you know, where I looked at her and that was kind of like another really instructive and very memorable and like very um, meaningful, deeply meaningful moment because literally I looked at her and I thought to myself, that could have been me, you know, like whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it right because that could have been me. And, you know, and, and at that time I was only like 18, 19 years old. So I still wasn't entirely quote unquote reformed, you know, and my last adult arrest was at 19. So, you know, cause I, you don't, that's the thing. It's like, you don't, people don't just dramatically change overnight, right? Like shifting a cultural mindset, shifting, um, your outlook on life, shifting your, the way that you think and the way that you approach things that doesn't happen overnight. It happens over years and years and it happens with sustained support and sustained mentorship and help. And also, um, you know, a, a lot of just personal commitment and frankly doggedness to, overcome whatever it is that life is throwing at you, you know, and I started to develop that skill and develop that muscle, if you will, um, kind of just as the years went by and I started to recognize that as my life was improving, that all of the sacrifices and everything that I was doing and all of the challenges that I was, was experiencing was proving to be worth it, right. you know? So then fast forward even a couple more years with more mentors and more people who came into my life and this constant, chorus of voices that were always telling me, Lucy, you can be better. Lucy, you can do more. Lucy, you're capable. And at 21, I finally acknowledged that I could be better. Like it took, it took that many, those many years for me to believe, to like truly believe that I was capable of more. And that's when I got my GED. And about a year later, a year or two later, again, more people are like, okay, now you need to go to college. You know, college is a thing for you. And I'm like, because, you know, getting a GED was already, yeah. that yeah. was already amazing Who enough. Who these you people? Know? Like, yeah. It was so, you know, again, as, as, my, as my crowd started to change, mm. I started to make different friends. Yeah. So those friends that I made in those pottery classes, those are the <laughs> ones that ended up going to college. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like the, the ditching was worth it. Um, but it was really, um, it was really these, these girls, these these young women um, from all and a lot of them Latinas because I was at a predominantly Latino high school so it was cool because I had girls that were like me but that were in college and I was like okay maybe I can go to college you know and literally they were like Lucy just go to community college like go sign up for some classes so I did and and when I decided that I was going to quote-unquote go to school or go back to school I decided at that time well, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do something that I've thought that I've always wanted to do, but never thought I actually could. And that was be a lawyer. Mm. And that was because obviously with all of my interactions with the law, <laughs> I was like, yo, I know my rights. And they're yeah. like, no, you don't. You're going to jail. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, damn. So it never really yeah. worked out for me, <laughs> but you know, and I always found the law to be just so incredibly fascinating, you know, and, and just the, the, the nuances and how they were applied. And that's the part that was most fascinating to me was that laws could be applied so differently, mm. but to so many different people, the law is not Girl. static, yes. right? The law is how that judge or that prosecutor decides or that jury decides they want mm. to apply it to you. Right. And we know how that has worked out for Absolutely. people of color, for poor people, et cetera, in this country. Mm. So that was the thing that fascinated me most about it. And I just wanted to learn about it. And so I decided that I would be a lawyer. So, you know, I, I 
well, I was so nervous about getting into community college because I didn't know the process. Yeah. All I knew was that I'd seen on TV, you know, and I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get in? They're never going to accept me. I had like a 1.2 GPA. And, and so I was like, they're never going to let me in. And then they're like, no, anybody can come. And I was like, what? <laughs> Seriously? Oh my God. Okay. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, and that's where it started. I ended up leaving, transferring out after a year of community college. And this was after a really terrible experience with financial aid, um, because that was a whole nother thing. You know, I ended up having to file an appeal and figure out all these things. But that was, that was me, right? I was, if something didn't make sense to me, I just figured it out. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. What do you mean there's no exception? You know, they wanted to essentially say that I could qualify for no financial aid because I had worked full time the year before. And I'm like, but how does that make sense? Like, how am I supposed to pay for school now if I don't have a job because I'm trying to go to school yeah. and yet you're basing your findings on uh, income from last year, yeah. right. you know? So you and had a strong sense of justice. Yes. Yeah. Like I love that, it. none of that makes sense. So then I literally was like, I want to talk to the director. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, there, every school has the ability to make their own waivers. Yeah. So I got a waiver and got my, it's called your EFC or estimated financial family contribution down to zero. Whereas before it was like 12,000 or something. I'm like, nobody can afford that. And even yeah. then that 12,000 would be like, sorry, you're wealthy enough yeah. that you can pay for your entire Ex education. Exactly. Exactly. So I got it down to zero and I was able to get full financial aid and I was able to go full time, which we also know mm. now from again, data and statistics that when young people enroll full time in community college, there's so many more times likelier to actually either graduate with an AA or transfer to a full four-year institution for their for their bachelor's for an advanced or an advanced degree. So when young people go into community college and they're part-time and they're working, they are yeah. they have a much much higher likelihood of dropping out and never finishing. Wow, right. Because again, life gets sense. in the way, yeah. right? Yeah. So I went full-time, I transferred out to USC, which again was just like another thing where I didn't qualify for any of the UC schools or a lot of these public schools. I knew I did not want to be in Vegas. That's all I knew for sure. Um, because, you know, again, like that system kind of like churned me, like chewed me up and spit me out. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just knew that that system was not supportive yeah. Yeah. for me, you know? Um, so I looked at two schools, Loyola and USC. And the reason why is because I was going through their financial aid packages and USC, I remember it said, we will, we guarantee 100 to meet 100% of your financial need. And I didn't know anything about anything, but I knew that I had a lot of financial need, yeah. you know? So I was so like, someone that was going to cover hundred percent. You know, like, so yes. I'm like 100, I'm there. Yes. yes. Where do I apply? I had no idea. It was like this crazy competitive school to get into. Like I just, you know, in many ways, my career has been so interesting because it's, it's oftentimes occurred. I've made all of these decisions that people think are very courageous, but frankly, I was just too dumb to know the difference. Mm. You know, I was like, <laughs> what so is it, ignorance is bliss. It really yeah. was. I was like, you know, I was completely naive to so many things that none of it scared me. You know, I was, I didn't realize how competitive USC was. I didn't realize that I had like a less than 10% chance of getting in. And that, 
that statistic or these challenges, recognizing these challenges alone, oftentimes scares people out of their opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I tell people all the time, whether it's deciding on a competitive school or a competitive job or whatever, do not discount yourself out before others do. Let other people tell you no. Don't say no to yourself first. Yes. Because we tend to do that. And and maybe if I had known differently, maybe I would have cut myself out first. Maybe I would have said no to myself first before giving others the opportunity to do it, right? But I didn't know any better, and so I just applied. And I ended up getting into USC, and sure enough, they met 100% of my financial need, which was amazing. Boom. Um, So they were getting, I was getting like $40,000, $50,000 a year in a grant. Not loans, not, but like full-on grant. Um, And from there, I transferred back out to, well, not transferred, I graduated, and then I started law school back in my hometown of Vegas. And that was was also a very, um, a very, um, in there was, there was intent behind going there. I had a reason it was because I had gotten involved in wrongful convictions. I was very interested in wrongful convictions. I had taken a class at USC and there was, I realized that there was no local organization in Nevada that was taking claims of wrongful conviction in the state. All of those claims were getting sent out and vetted by a Utah legal clinic. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And wrongful convictions, I guess that really spoke to me because, yeah, you know, I guess like what you mentioned earlier, it's like, I've always been very justice oriented. Mm -hmm. And to find out that there was so many people in our prison systems that were literally sitting there serving 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We've, we've murdered, the state has murdered innocent people, right? So to have your most basic sense of what this country was founded on, which is liberty, this most basic sense of freedom, Mm -hmm. right? To have that taken from you and for you to be able to do nothing about it and and to sit there serving time for a crime you did not commit i don't know something about that just like you know it just like hit me deep down where i was like there that that is just so that is just fundamentally wrong in this country you know and and for me what was most compelling about it was that you could actually do something to mitigate that happening to decrease the likelihood of somebody being convicted wrongfully in this country. But we weren't doing those things because you had really terrible prosecutors and you had, you know, really horrible people who were working in, in bias and racism and in our law enforcement and like in all these processes that if we change those things, you didn't have to, there's always going to be an error rate because it's a human based system, but you could, you could significantly decrease the amount of people that were potentially getting wrongfully convicted in this country if you just made these changes in the system. And so that's what really spoke to me. And I decided to go to Vegas for law school um, because I was going to start this clinic. And then that was like a whole nother thing that eventually led me to running for office and doing these things. But, you know, I'll, I'll keep this part short. I basically said, okay, I'm going to go to, to UNLV. I'm going to start this clinic and that'll be like my legacy, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I convinced my crim law uh, professor to let me do like a survey, you know, in my mind, it was very scientific. Um, but basically <laughs> it was like, this is what a wrongful conviction clinic is. This is what an innocence clinic is. Um, 
this is the problem. If this was offered, would you take it? Like, yes or no. It was like very simple. Like, do you like me? Yes or no. So <laughs> yes, you know? And so like most of the people said they were either interested or they would take it, you know? So then I take all of my findings, my scientific findings, and I take it to the guy who runs the professor who runs the clinic, the clinical program. And I'll never forget it. I, I gave him all of my papers, my documents, you know, I had my, my whole little case made out for myself. I had already been talking to the Innocence Clinic in Utah that was processing the claims from Nevada and like had all of my ducks in a row. And I go to him and I say, you know, what can we do to get this going? This state, the state needs this. There's no reason why it shouldn't exist. And you actually have willing law students who want to do this kind of work. And you have, at that point, I had another professor who was willing to take on actually developing, leading the clinic, like had all the pieces in place. And he sits, he's sitting there and I'll never forget it. His feet were up on the, on the desk and he's leaning back and he didn't bother to take his feet off while I'm making this case to him, you know? And he's like, you know, listening, listening. And then he looks up at me and he says, you know, Lucy, this is really interesting, but you'll never see an innocence clinic in your lifetime at this school. And I was like, like, like dead you know I was like what you know I was crushed because I'm like but why you know like there's there's a demand it's you know there's a need there's all these things there's people want to do it like why and he's like because that's just not one of the major pressing issues that we're dealing with you know we have we have crim we have criminal justice we have our youth clinic we have you know start naming all these things that were to his in his mind more important And, and higher priorities. And I'm like, but that doesn't mean that this isn't also important. You know, so I'm like sitting there, I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I said, all right, cool. So I literally walked out of there and said, fuck you. I will see an innocence clinic. This is, if this is the last thing I will do, I will get this done. And sure enough, by the end of my last year of law school, not only had I, was an innocence clinic established, but I was also heading to Carson City to work with um, the other clinic out of Utah on a joint effort to um, lobby wrongful conviction reform legislation in the state capitol. Amazing. Wow. So, you know, and it was funny because a couple of years later, he actually apologized to me, you know, yeah. so good, yeah, good for so, you. exactly. So I was like always really, you know, I, was, I always thought that that was really meaningful that he, you know, was like, I remember effort. that mm-hmm. and, and I'm sorry. And, you know, and he's like, I apologize and you proved me wrong. Yeah. And, you know, and so it was like kind of those, it was, that was another instructive moment, you know, where it was like, people will tell you that you will not succeed, that you will never do it, that, that there's no way. And and sometimes you believe them. And sometimes you do, but, and you know, it like, it crushes your spirit sometimes because especially when you put so much effort into something for someone to know such, so nonchalantly just tell you that your dream means nothing. Yeah. You know, I mean that you, you can internalize that or you can use that. Right. And I've always managed to use all of these things. And so I did end up in Carson City as an intern. Um, I, I ended up working on wrongful conviction legislation as an as a, an extern is what that's called when you're in law school. But as an extern slash intern, I ended up passing that legislation. And there was many times where it where I didn't think it was going to pass, you know, and it was there in that setting that I not only found my own voice, more of my own voice, but then also started speaking very openly about my 
about my mm. experience growing mm -hmm. up in my community. Um, it wasn't the first time I had publicly given a speech or talked about my experience. The first time I did that actually was at USC, and that's really where I did find um, the power of narrative, where I truly discovered the power of narrative. But then I really started actively using it when I was lobbying for this for this legislation. Yeah. And that's really when people started saying, you know, Lucy, you should consider running for office and you should consider doing these things. And, and of course at that time I was like, what? <laughs> I'm in law school. Like <laughs> I have had like no jobs, you know, I'm yeah, like, yeah. I have zero experience, you know? And that is another common thing that you find amongst women as well. Right? Like we, I think, you know, all of us were at this really incredible event at the creative arts agency, you know, and you had, I forgot who it was, but, um, well, I mean, like many, many amazing women there who, who were saying that, um, that we oftentimes, you know, internalize all of this and we talk ourselves down. And even though we're 100% or 90% experienced qualified, and qualified yeah. and capable, we only think that we're half or we only think that we're at 30 or that we're not fully there or that we have to be at 100 before we, we can act actually move like forward. we're at 40%, yeah. right? Yeah. Like there's a mindset right. that's built in that we enter a room as if we're inadequate, as if we are not qualified, knowing that we have most of yeah. it exactly mm -hmm. and that was really for me it was such an eye-opening experience because when I got to Carson City that's my capital in Nevada uh, there were no people of color there was certainly no Latinas right I mean the people of color were doing un again unfortunately stereotypical jobs they were cleaning they were you know they were cooks they were they were the wait staff right there weren't there was maybe like one Latina who worked in the administrative office but it was all a bunch of white people Right. And so you didn't see yourself reflected in or like look at them and say, oh, I could do that, too. But what I did find out and what was was truly transformational for me was that as I was going through this process and working on this legislation, when I got there, I was so intimidated by everyone, everyone. I was quiet I kept my head down that lasted for like a week you know because I was like it did Good not girl. take me long yeah. I was like oh okay. okay I see what's going on yeah. here. so it didn't take me long though to realize that I was so much smarter than so many people in that building mm. and frankly so many people that were elected I literally would look at them and be like oh yeah I could do a way better job than you right you know and that's when you really start to recognize that that when you start to see frankly the mediocrity surrounding you you know and that and that this life is not a meritocracy we do not live in a meritocracy we don't live in a situation where because you're the best or because you're the hardest working or because you're the person that cares the most mm -hmm. that you get to the top faster. That's not how this works, right? Like you have to figure that shit out yeah. and you have to figure out how to be fast on your feet and you have to figure out how to be not only the smartest, but also the most creative and the person who sees the opportunity and isn't afraid to take it. And, and that's really what I found to be the most instructive was because there was there was frankly so many mediocre, mediocre people yeah. that I was like, no, this, this state deserves better. My community deserves better than just you people. And that's not to say that there wasn't really incredible people there because there were, and I gravitated to those people. Those were my mentors. Those were, you know, like one of my, my dearest, my dearest and most, you know, 
love him so much mentor was this really old lobbyist. He was one of the oldest serving lobbyists in Carson City and he ended up being my mentor. Um, And he was just so incredibly amazing, just this old little white man. And, you know, he's still my mentor to this day. He helped me, frankly, negotiate my my salary package um, at Me Too when I ended up joining Me Too. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, right. And, and, you know, and it was those, there are really amazing people out there that, uh, that aren't necessarily other Latinas or other, you know, people from your own background or your own race or whatever, you know, and those are the ones that you gravitate to and those are the ones that you try to aspire to be. And that's what I was able to find in Carson City. So when people finally said you should run and I had to make a decision about what I was going to do, um, I gave up a full ride scholarship to the USC School of Marshall, to the Marshall School of Business um, and said and decided to to forego that because what I what I did find was that I wanted to do the thing that was most fulfilling to me. Mm-hmm. And what I found most fulfilling to me was being able to work on this on these laws to be able to work on policy that didn't just affect maybe one person or two people, but had the potential to improve the lives of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And that to me was literally the most fulfilling thing that I could ever be a part of. And when you speak about people feeling like insecure when they walk into rooms or feeling like they're not smart enough and being afraid to raise their voice. You know, I think right now as we're coming up um, to an election and we have more women running for office than we've seen, I think, ever. I know that there are also a lot of people who don't go to the polls because there's an intimidation. They feel like they're not well versed on the issues. They don't think that they don't understand understand how it affects them and how it, it impacts their communities. So how can we let people know that even if you're not a politician, even if that's not the circle that you run in, it is important to engage and not feel intimidated by the process. Yeah, and I get it. You know, the very first time I voted, I was, I voted, I, I guess I randomly voted when I was like 18 or 19, I think probably right as someone registered me and then I went and voted. Like, I don't even remember doing it. But the first time that I voted after that, I was 20, 25 or 26. You know, I it was the John Kerry presidential election. Mm-hmm. And I was living here in L.A. I was in school. And that was the first time that I voted. You know, I mean, like, and that's pretty typical for our community when you have young people who don't vote. Mm -hmm. And and I get it. When I first when I when I decided to vote because, you know, it was a presidential election, I thought it was really important. I I didn't know what to do. You know, like I definitely felt intimidated, too. Like I went to the the little trailer or wherever I was supposed to go (laughs) with my book and everything and. And I literally was just like, I've never voted. I don't know how to do this, you know? And and they teach you, they show you. And that's the thing is like, you have to, don't, people shouldn't be afraid to be vulnerable. Like no one is going to judge you. If you have absolutely no clue how to, where to find your polling place, how, what to do when you get there, like, and you just feel super intimidated and maybe even slightly stupid because, you know, you're feeling like people are going to judge you or whatever, like let all of that shit go. Cause everybody's so helpful. There's like people literally spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars mm. to get people to vote. They want to help you, you know? So first and foremost is don't feel like anyone's judging you and don't feel intimidated and don't feel like it's not your place. It is your place and people want to help you. And there's so many resources out there, you know, like 
there's there's 800 numbers you can call there's websites there's or local organizations i mean there's this there's so much out there and second as far as the issues you're right a lot of people this is what we have found in research as well is that people say that they don't vote because they don't feel confident enough in their vote or they don't feel like they want to make the wrong choice right there is no wrong choice. Even if you spend a, just five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, looking at your ballot for your local representative, whether it's your state assembly person or your state senator um, or whoever's on your ballot, and literally just look up their names and read a little bit of their platform. If that person seems reasonable to you, for you, then vote for that person. You know, you don't have to understand every single policy position that they take. You don't have to know every last aspect of their of their agenda. You don't have to you don't have to know all of that. And also, if you're comfortable being a party voter, like if you're a Democrat and and you're comfortable with just voting for all Democrats, you could do that, too. People do that. You know, they're called slate voters. They literally, they have no idea who those people are, but but they know I have a D next to their name. Or if you're a Republican and you see that they're all Republicans, then vote for the entire Republican ticket and call it a day. And I think the other thing is also, and I know this is for me something that over the past few years I've become more aware of, is that obviously we all think about the presidential election. This person's really important. This is who we're going to vote for. Senate, yes. Congress gets murky, kind of gets lost in there. And then you think about a state assembly woman or your, you know, your your state Senate. And it's like, well, who are those people? And do I really like what kind of impact are they having? And as someone who was a former state assembly woman in Nevada, what was your job like? What type of role do you have? What type of policy do you impact directly on the, like the constituents? Our in jobs, as far as the impact that it makes on your daily lives, were far more important than the president or the Congress or the U.S. Senate would ever be in that small amount of time. Mm. Now, obviously, we see what the president is doing, and it has been horrific, and it has been vile and 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 it feels like you're living in the twilight zone mm-hmm. and so the president obviously can have very very impactful and significant decisions um and things that they can do to impact your life um very negatively as we have seen but when it comes to the day to day when it comes to how your schools are being funded when it comes to how police are being funded and frankly how they're being also um treated in terms of you know police brutality and whether or not we're prosecuting police and all of these little day-to-day things that affect you frankly even like whether or not you're parking your parking hours are decent for your community you know what i'm saying like whether or not your potholes are getting fixed you know literally your day-to-day stuff um, the, t- the amount of taxes that you pay um, from your from your paycheck, you know, all of the stuff that affects you every single day is happening at the state level. And those changes are essentially done every single year. So like look at all of the propositions that are on the ballot, right? You have the one that's looking at implementing rent control statewide, right? Proposition 10, which I'm supporting. Um, that is done by your local person right? That's done by your local assembly person. That's done by your local state senator. That's that's either going to get signed or not signed by your state governor. These state positions are not sexy. And, and in many ways, it's where you as the voter can have the most impact. That's where your voice is so powerful because so few people vote 
in these little smaller elections that literally I won most of my elections with three to 10,000 votes. Wow. Right? Out of a community of several hundred thousand. Wow. That's how little the turnout is in some of these votes. But, but why? I mean, because even even recently, I was looking at some da- uh, some data from the Pew uh, Research Center, and they were saying how like the numbers of of Latinos that are registered to vote in the country is at like an ultimate low. When we're seeing and we we see all these campaigns going out, like guys, we need to go out there, and we're and we're, and we're watching it like live now, right? As it's happening. What is, why is it that usually midterms, because it happens, you know, every Mm -hmm. four years during the midterm elections, Mm -hmm. that it's a lower turnout with voters. Right. But now, especially with the Latino community. This, so it's a couple of different reasons. And some of them, some of the reasons are their fault and some of them aren't. Right. And some of them is just that it's a cultural thing and it's a generational thing. You know, for many Latinos in this country, um, we are either first generation, second generation, some are going on third. Right. Um, And it's just not something that was built into our DNA when we were growing up. It wasn't something that we were accustomed to. It wasn't something that was normal for our families. I don't know about you guys, but obviously my family was not going out and voting um, every single primary and general election every single year, whether it was the midterms or a presidential or otherwise or a municipal, right? Like it's not our, it's not our, um, it's just not a part of all co- our culture. It's mm-hmm. not with the thing that we think about to be civically engaged in that way. Another reason is because, frankly, the Democratic Party and a lot of these organizations have taken Latinos for granted. And I say that all the time and I say it very loudly because for many, many years, I was a very good soldier for the Democratic Party and yet we never got anything in return. And I... I literally got over it. I was like, you know what? We have to be loud about this. We have to, we have to call people out when they're doing right, but we have to call them out when they're doing wrong. And, and when you are only investing in the Latino community, essentially every four years, maybe two, because they think that they need your vote at that time, that does nothing to deal with the fact that we don't necessarily have this within our culture. It does not help to normalize the act of voting, to normalize the act of being civically engaged, to normalize um, this idea of being aware of what's happening around you at the local local level, state level, and federal level. So it's a lot of different reasons. So one of the things that I fight for often and what I advocate for is more investment in the Latino community so that we're not just talking to you're not we're not just seeing these campaigns and hearing and and reading about all of this data and these terrible statistics about Latinos literally about two to three months before every single election cycle right like why why are we reading about this or why aren't we hearing about this in January right why don't we read about this in December why don't right it's literally every two years but usually every four when people are like oh it's the latinos again they don't vote they well i mean if nobody is knocking on your door if nobody is is educating you if nobody is saying you know these are the these are the important reasons oh and by the way let me teach you how to register to vote and let me teach you how to actually go vote let me show you that this is a normal thing for you and that this matters for your community then again it's just like me being literally thrown out of prison and thrown into my the situation I came from and, and being expected to act differently. Right. Like we have to also 
you know, recognize that, that we have to build community for ourselves too, you know, but we also need the investment of all of these organizations that want our vote and want our support, but aren't willing to put any dollars behind it. So it's a lot of different reasons, but I, I do think that, you know, first and foremost, it definitely is still our responsibility as individuals, you know, to go out there and to constantly be talking to our friends about it. And, you know, you don't have to be the one that's always like, you know, being the, the like nagging, you know, did you vote today? You know, like you could just be like, oh yeah, you know, like we're, we're going to brunch and then we're voting afterwards or, you know, we're voting before and then we're meeting for brunch, you know what I'm saying? Like, and just like to be able to, kind of just normalize that act, um, you know, within our, within our daily lives and the way in which we talk about it. And, and since your departure from politics, although I don't want to call it a departure because I think that you're still, um, so active in the political landscape, but, um, you've actually moved more into media, another space that has a lot of impact and have recently started your own media collective. Can you let us know all about that? Yeah. So, you know, when I left politics, I was pretty devastated and, and it was the right thing. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I spent, an entire summer just talking to friends and colleagues and just catching up with people. I mean, people had babies, you know, I was visiting babies all over the country. <laughs> all of these things were happening as I had really dedicated, I was still single, you yeah. know, like I put my entire 100%, my entire being into my work and, and I left it all on the field. And so when I finished up this last race in 2016, I was done. I mean, like in every way possible, like emotionally, physically, mentally, I was exhausted. And, and so I knew at that time that I was not going to run again for anything anytime soon, that I really did need a a quote unquote break, Mm -hmm. not necessarily from politics, because that's always like, again, the person I'm going to be, but from actually running for anything, um, and I, I also, you know, I've always operated my life in this, in this sense of, of, of purpose. And, and I knew from that one moment that I made that decision to run for office because, and give up that full ride scholarship to, to Marshall, that I was making that decision because it was the thing that fulfilled me and that what made me feel like I was serving some sort of a purpose on this earth, Mm -hmm. you know, that the reason why, and I tell people all the time that your life in this country shouldn't be about luck. Your life shouldn't be based on whether or not you were lucky to be born into the right neighborhood or the right family or the right social or economic situation. And so much of what I've managed to do has been because of luck. Yes, it's been because of me and my personal dedication and commitment to trying to be better. But if I hadn't gotten that parole officer, if I hadn't gotten all of these people who came into my lives, I have friends who are like that young woman in prison. She didn't get the person that gave her a second chance. Or maybe she did. I don't know, right? But I know that based on my experience, we didn't get second chances like that. People didn't believe in us that way. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason... I got lucky and I felt like I needed to almost like repay that in some way, you know, that there was, there was some sort of bigger purpose in me being here. If I was one of the lucky ones that happened to get those opportunities and, and then to be able to make something of those opportunities. So 
I've always just really believed that if you follow your path, if you follow that thing that drives you, whatever that is, that if you're constantly searching and fulfilling your purpose, whatever that purpose is, that thing that makes you feel whole, then everything else will follow. Money will follow, opportunities will follow, whatever you need to be taken care of will follow. And that's always been the situation for me. Like I've always managed to work things out. I've always been able to, I mean, you know, there was things that you had to do. I went into debt, frankly, to be able to live as a public servant because Mm -hmm. I practiced law for two years um, because in Nevada, it's considered a part-time legislature. But I literally, after two years, could not do both jobs. And so I gave up half of my salary. I took 50% pay cut in order for me to spend most of my time doing a good job for my community and focusing my work on, you know, trying to advocate and, and be successful in, in that way. And, and ended up, you know, like literally about a year ago, I just ended up paying credit card debt that I accumulated during my 2014 wow. legisl- um, lieutenant governor race, wow. you know, but I never felt bad about those things. I, you know, certainly there's things that we have to fix about that. Like you shouldn't have to be poor and go into debt to, to get an education. And to, yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously we need to fix those things, mm-hmm. but I never felt bad about it. I never felt like In it was moment, a bad decision, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like I just knew that you do what you got to do and everything will work out. And so, you know, after that summer of me saying, okay, what do I do next? I didn't know anything other than I knew I wanted to continue to advocate on behalf of my community. And the way that I was going to do that was to find some sort of a platform. I thought I was going to be a talking head. I thought I was going to be like a commentator on CNN or whatever, you know, Um, but but I ended up having conversations with a lot of different people, ended up meeting Beatriz, meeting Beatriz Acevedo, who was the co- one of the co-founders of Me Too. Um, they were just starting to build up um, a public affairs discipline within Me Too. Um, Donald Trump was happening. And so media had zero idea of how to deal with him because it was just so unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, communities media of still color. doesn't know how, don't right. know how to we still, We're knows. just like, you know, so every day, it we're, like it's I said, it's, it's like the twilight mm-hmm. zone. And so, but never in history had you had a viable and then president directly attack communities in the way that he was attacking yeah. them and still survive, right? Mm-hmm. Like every single time something more outrageous came out, Every single pundit out there said, he's done. He's done. Yeah. He's done. Right? He won't make it. He won't make he won't it. Make he's it on the done. He's done. And and actually the opposite happened. Yeah. And so it was at that time that Me Too was also trying to figure out their place in the world in terms of, okay, how do we address this? How do we, you know, how do we figure out a strategy on how to continue to represent our community, et cetera? How do we defend our community against people like this? Because then again, it wasn't just Donald Trump. He was empowering and and making and normalizing other racists in this country yes. and other um, hateful people within the administration and other hateful electeds, anti-immigrant mm-hmm. people, racist people, sexist people, misogynist, yeah. you know, all of these people who are in them. our government and you're like, oh my God, you were all, clo- at least you were kind of closeted <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. Right. Now you you're know, out. At least like you denied it. I think it. it's like a Chris Rock. Now, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He's like, go back to being racist. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're just like, 
holy cow, they just came out the woodwork and he made it okay. And so for me, it was just such an opportune time because media is so powerful, as you guys know. I mean, Mm -hmm. this podcast is so powerful, right? You know, we're... And now more than any time in, in history, we have had an opportunity also, as you know, to not have to deal with gatekeepers, to bypass gate, gatekeepers of mainstream media and to produce your own podcast or to produce your own YouTube show or to produce your own whatever, right? And get your message out there to... Um, to either push back against narratives or change narratives or correct narratives. You know, I always tell people that everybody knows what a welfare queen is. But there's a reason why we know what a welfare queen is. First and foremost, welfare queens don't exist, right? Like there's no such thing. Are there I was, people? I was about to ask, wait, wait, what? Yeah. So there's people who take advantage mm-hmm. of, of welfare, sure. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you know, multimillionaires taking advantage of, um, um, of you know. Look at that New York Times Exactly, article. like investment opportunities on Wall Street, right? right? Like everybody takes advantage, but there's a very small percentage of people who actually commit fraud against welfare right. and welfare systems. And, you know, back in the 80s under Reagan, he coined, he didn't actually coin this term welfare queen but he started uh, you guys probably don't remember and I don't remember either but I've watched a lot of documentaries so (laughs) (laughs) but there was this he basically um highlighted this one woman out of California a black woman who apparently had you know like collected all kinds Mm. of money from welfare had like six kids um was like spending money on frivolous things like you know hairdressers and stuff like that and and she highlighted and made this one woman right the the poster child for all women particularly women of color but all people of color on welfare and saying that they're 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 lazy all they want to do is take take benefits Mm -hmm. and have kids and go out and get their nails done and and literally created this persona right of the welfare queen but he did not coin the term the chicago tribune coined the term Mm. The Chicago Tribune did a um, an article or something on, you know, whatever it is, one of his things that he was, a speech or something he'd given, and they're the ones who first used the term a welfare queen. And ever since then, that term has been introduced into our, into our language, into our narrative, and literally you will not meet a lot of people out there who don't know what a welfare queen is, mm-hmm. even though we know that that is a complete and total fabrication, right? That's the power of media. Yep. That's the power of narrative. And so for me, being an advocate and constantly wanting to challenge those stereotypes and to speak up and say, that's actually not right. There's all these other perspectives that you should be taking into mm-hmm. account. There's other things that you should be taking into account there's there's things that you have not thought about whether it's about the formerly incarcerated or whether it's about people living in poverty or whether it's about all of these things resources. right yeah. resources etc those are that those conversations are not being had in mainstream media why because it's predominantly populated by older white people who frankly don't have those lived experiences or don't even think about those perspectives mm-hmm. because they don't have them. Right. And that's where I saw the opportunity both with Me Too and now with the Loose Collective, which is um, a new media venture that myself and two of my former uh, Latina 
colleagues from Me Too, um, launched together. It's a media venture, but it's digital media events and a e-commerce marketplace featuring Latina merchandisers. Amazing. Um, it's called the Loose Collective. Um, by the time this this goes out live, it, our site will also be live. So go to okay. loosecollective.com. Yes. It's for Latinas by Latinas. We are trendsetters. We are leaders in our community. We are we are overperforming in all metrics when it comes to what quote unquote American success is, whether mm-hmm. it's an educational attainment, whether it's an entrepreneurship, whether it's in all of these, whether it's um, representation, growing representation in law, in teaching, in medicine, we're still severely, severely underrepresented, but the gains that we have been making in the last decade, they supersede everyone. When a Latina runs or founds a company she overperforms compared to all of her other counterparts her other female counterparts right so we have like all of these increasing statistics and that when you when you look at the landscape I mean even in the podcast landscape how many podcasts are there that are led by Latinas not enough there's a handful yeah right right? there's like what 10 20 maybe 30 I don't know Mm -hmm. you know I'm saying like out of what the literal thousands and thousands and thousands of podcasts out there I think I saw a crazy statistic that like three three percent of podcasts are hosted by women so if you can and that's women women so if you can only imagine where latina women fall in that's exactly right and those statistics play themselves out industry by industry Mm -hmm. by industry by industry and so we are the trailblazers absolutely you know we are you know i i look back 10 20 30 40 50 years ago to other latinas or other women of color who were fighting their own battles and fighting their own fights and paving the way for us and and i see where we are now and we're like holy cow like they literally just kind of started paving the road we're just a continuation of that and we have so much more to go you know like uh, the road is so long and we're just at the very beginning so I really see this as such an amazing opportunity for us you know I almost feel like it's like a frontier you know yes. we're yeah. like yeah. you know on just our horses hope your oxen like, doesn't die <laughs> while you're crossing right uh, exactly oh my god do you, you used, to, used to play the Oregon, Oregon Trail, Trail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right but that's how I feel right and we're not like we're not we're not um we're not stealing anyone's land and we're not, no, you know, massacring innocent people. Like not goodness. that kind of frontier. No, yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 not, not like that. Like inclusive, everybody come with us frontier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> no. And I think, you know, for me, I think that's why I've always been drawn to media. There is so much power in our voices, you know, and any last one of us can go out there and give our opinion and it doesn't have to necessarily be over a media medium, mm-hmm. right? You can literally go out there and like go to a book club, you know, or right. or, or talk to your neighbor or whatever, right? Like you you have something to say and you should feel empowered to say it and you should be, feel empowered to act on it, you know? But if there's ever a time when anyone listening has thought, oh man, I, I could do a podcast or I could do this or I could do that. There's plenty of room for right. you. Yes. There is Absolutely. so much room. Absolutely. You know, like one of the questions that we're asked because we're we're in the process of raising um, seed funding right now for, for our company. Um, 
And one of the questions that were asked is, you know, what does a competitive landscape look like? And we're like, well, like there's nothing. So, you know, and they're like, well, what are you going to do if someone steals your idea and someone that has a lot more money than you um, is able to scale this quickly and just like create it and whatever. And we're just like, cool. The more the merrier. There's 27 million Latinas out there. Yeah, like if y'all want to yeah. do something fantastic, that doesn't stop us from doing ours. Right. You know, like we're still going to be successful too. Because that's that's the scarcity mentality that people try to to drill down into you. That if someone launches a podcast, another another Latina launches a podcast, that somehow like that's going space. to take yeah, up your space. Right. Like, right. Like, no, there's actually plenty to go around. Yeah. There's plenty of success. There's $700 billion worth of money flowing out there from all of our pockets. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like there is enough, there is abundance and we have to force ourselves to not get caught up in this scarcity mentality because I'll be honest, that is something that our, that my, my foremothers that they did that. Yeah. And I've experienced that, you right. know, like getting into politics. I was 27 years old when I was first appointed to a commission. I was 29 when I ran for office. So, you know, imagine being like a 29 year old, um, you know, fresh out of law school, former felon, like all of these things. And you're just trying to find your way and you're trying to get as much guidance and support that you can, but there's only mm. a handful of Latinas out there and half of them don't bother to want to help you. Half of them don't want to help you because they see you as a threat, yeah. right? Like that does something to yourself too. For me, like people ask me who will, who've your mentors been. And I used to always include those women. I include those women because they taught me what not, not to, to be. be. Right. And and I and still to this day, there's women out there, you know, who proclaim themselves to be champions and they're all about mm -hmm. empowering women and da, da da da. And then when it's actually time to put some money or put some effort or put some actions behind that, they're nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Right. We know who they are. Yeah. We know those women. And and I love that idea. I think it's and if anything, if all our listeners will take from that, you know, it's like, yeah, there is a lot of space. If you have an idea, if you want to create something, if you want to create a podcast, if you want to, yes, you know we will help equipment, you. How to so start, many people have asked us and we're like, how yes, to get this an is RSS what we do. Feed. Exactly. And if we don't tell our stories, I feel like if we don't do this more often where we get to hear other people like us share what they've been through and share their opinions of the world, if we don't have people like ourselves in media spaces telling our stories, then we will allow other people that have nothing to do with our community mm -hmm. that have like n no regard, don't care, speaking on our behalf. That's right. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get these distorted ideas of who we are and what we need. That's exactly right. That's mm -hmm. right. You're allowing someone else to tell your story for you and no one can tell it better than yourself and that's literally you know the premise one of the basic premises of the loose collective you know we're we're a media company and and yes and we're for profit and i tell everyone we're going to be latina oprah's hey. um <laughs> so you know but and i'm being like dead serious about that yes girl um, <laughs> put it into the universe that's another episode that we've done plenty right? of times but yes. put it out there but, but we're also there for the purpose of uplifting and bringing as many Latinas along with us as possible and women of color and allies, you know, but our, for our primary focus is the Latina community because we have been so underserved and, and, you know, and a big part of that is our platform is your platform. Like we want to figure out how to feature you all as often as we can, you know, like we want to create this space that, that literally is an 
embodiment of our tagline, which is for Latinas by Latinas, right? It's for you first and foremost. And we actually kind of went back and forth on that. We we're like, is it by Latinas for Latinas or is it for Latinas? You know, and we we're like, mm-hmm. no, it's for them. It's for them. And also the acronym just flows better. You yeah. Know? So we we're like <laughs> FLBL, BLFL. And we we're like, eh. but no, but like, right. Like to us, like that's the, that's our mission. We are a mission driven company, but obviously we know how to monetize against all of these different things that we're doing. And we know all of the revenue strategies and we know from our past experience, um, as executives at me too, um, and just everything else that all of us have collectively done, Mm -hmm. you know, that we can be successful while doing this as well. And, you know, why not? I mean, we've, I feel like we've kind of discovered the formula of like having the best of both worlds, you know, you can be successful and you can actually, help and empower and change Mm -hmm. a trajectory for an entire community of really incredible women in this country. We love it. Well, thank you so much, not only for what you're doing now, but the work that you've done in the past and honestly for like constantly educating people and allowing us to have a space where it's like we can hit you up and be like, okay, Lucy, this person's running and I don't know what this means (laughs) or what is happening here politically. And, you know, that's such a resource that we really need. All of my social media has always been open. Anyone, I don't have that setting where, you know, you can't send me a message like I don't. I don't promise to get back immediately because I manage all of my own messages and mm-hmm. my own social media. So, but I get back to every last person. I, I mean, I think I, you say, did yeah, the same yeah, thing yeah. to you. I was like, like, I'm sorry. I hit you up. I, this took a couple days. I slid and- into her DMs and I was like, hey girl, we want you on the show. Um, so <laughs> right. That was great. So I responded, but, yes. but yeah, I mean like that's, that's part of it too, right? Is that that I try to be as accessible as I possibly can. And where can they find you and Loose Collective online? So um, they can find us on, uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Facebook and Twitter, it's Loose Collective. On Instagram, it's The Loose Collective. And then on our website, loosecollective.com. So if you just go to our website, loosecollective.com, you'll find all of our social media platforms. You'll find lots of amazing stories on really awesome Latinas. We're launching an alpha Latina campaign. It's literally just to feature... Um, incredible Latinas in all industries and in all kinds of places doing really awesome stuff and telling those stories about Latinas, alpha Latinas who are out there kicking ass and taking names. That's so dope. And that is definitely you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much again (laughs) for joining us. Thank you. Honestly, if you're not motivated to run to your polls on November 6th, I just don't know don't what else we can... Don't talk to me ever again, okay? <laughs> right? like, what like, else seriously. can we say to you? Uh, oof. I mean, listen, I get it. There are No one is everything that you want them to be politically. I think that it's fair to say that. Right. However, I don't think that this is a time where we can sit idly by and just allow no. things to happen to us. Absolutely not. And if it, And you have to do whatever it takes. Like, seriously, I know some of us come from, like very stubborn families where they think that, oh, my vote doesn't count. My vote is not going to make a difference. I'm in California, blah, blah, blah. I've heard it so many ways. I've heard it all. Take your brothers, take your sisters, take your neighbors, take your aunts, everybody that needs to, that can vote, 
please take them to the polls. Ooh, Lyft and Uber will be yes. offering free rides to get to the polls. We will be posting that information on our Instagram. Um, so look out for it and definitely check that out. So you really have no excuse. And honestly, I just want to thank Lucy, who is constantly a resource within the Latinx community and is constantly sharing her wisdom, her story, which is remarkable and is a reminder that to this day, we have so many systems in place in the United States that keep people oppressed. And you know how things like that changed? At the polls. November 6th. November 6th. Elections. Elections. Don't miss them. Sorry, I just made that kind of like sexy. I didn't mean to. (laughs) That's great, Jess. Yes. Or it sounded more creepy. get yourself out of your house and get your butt to the polls. Damn, y'all. Yeah. Okay. I'm really serious about this. I know. I'm so serious about this. And thank you again to Lucy for stopping by. It was great to hear her story as well. Just of like all the hardships she's been through and how she made it out of that environment, you know, mm-hmm. and how she's just done so well with her life and is now an inspiration for a lot of, I know it, for a lot of young people Absolutely. that were, that are, that feel like are, are in her shoes at, at some point, you know? For sure. So, and check out the Loose Collective. We can't um, wait to check it out. And I know that we definitely need more spaces for Latinas stories to be told and to have our, you know, voices represented. So we are so, so excited for this and wish her and her co-founders nothing but tons of success. So as always, thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. Don't forget to check us out on all our social, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you uh, check out the pod. Yes. Until next time, y'all. Bye. Bye. Love you guys. Wait, hold on.